Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowley. We're now in the final week of the New South Wales local government elections, and after doing a few podcasts about various local councils, uh, we're zooming out today and I'm discussing the elections overall with Roberta Ryan, Professor of Local Government at the University of Newcastle. Hello, Roberta. Hello. Good to speak to you, Ben. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start today by talking a little bit about amalgamations and de-amalgamations, which is one of the big trends that has affected local councils over the last few years. The last round of elections took place just as the amalgamation process was finishing off. Uh, It was split in two rounds in 2016 and 2017, but voters have now had four years to judge the new councils created in the process. There is one council that is holding a non-binding plebiscite on de-amalgamation, while another merged council has already been put under administration and has had its election delayed by a year. Roberta, do you think the success or otherwise of these mergers will be a factor on the minds of voters in those councils this year? Oh, yeah, I do. I think the amalgamations and the scale of the new councils um, across New South Wales is a factor for people in voting. And I think it's got potentially kind of positive and a a negative impact on people's participation. I think in a positive sense, these large councils are big, well-resourced, Uh, I think now many people, partly due to COVID as well and the amalgamations, I think know which council they're in and and, uh, and how to vote, which isn't always the case where people know even which LGA they live in. Um, But certainly the big councils, uh, you know, are well known as I would see it. The negative side, I think, is that people sometimes feel that the particularities of their place or their specific suburb or location might be lost in the context of a larger council and that I expect is more prominent in the non-metropolitan areas across New South Wales. There is one council that is holding a plebiscite that's the inner west quite close to the Sydney CBD. It's a council that has a lot of very active activist communities and, and politics and the Greens in particular have been very much not accepting of the amalgamation uh, although I think sometimes they exaggerate a little bit how much these councils differ from each other and then current council differs from its predecessor. But as we were discussing before, it does appear that the amalgamations uh, were maybe more controversial generally in those regional areas. So what are some of those regional councils where they've been controversial? Look, they've been controversial in a number of places um, and they're often uh, local government areas which have a larger regional centre and then perhaps a number of smaller towns within the LGA. So if you take the Dubbo-Wellington uh, example, it's just as one. Dubbo is obviously a big regional centre and then there's smaller regional towns that sit within the LGA. So it's often the case uh, that these smaller uh, areas feel like all the action happens in town or in the big town, the bigger the bigger centre and the, the smaller regional places are forgotten. I mean, we did a, a close analysis of one of the South Australian examples a number of years ago, um, which had a, a larger regional centre and then four smaller areas. And we just did an analysis of where the money spent and uh, relative to how much revenue is raised in those areas and so on. And it's reasonable to say, I think, that... Um, the challenge is distributing the financial investment in these smaller areas where the rate base in these smaller areas is quite small. Um, and so some transparency around that, I think, helps those smaller areas realise that, in fact, they're 
almost always cross-subsidised financially by the larger regional centre. But also you've got to invest in your regional centres because that's where all the, you know, the main offices are or the, the companies are as well. So, But it is difficult and uh, that's a balance for regional councils to make sure that those smaller centres feel included, that there's specific investment uh, and that they identify and understand you know, what's particular about all these smaller places which have their own identities and history and so on. So Dubbo Wellington, one of the issues that's been playing out there, they are holding a referendum, but not about de-amalgamation. They're holding a referendum about abolishing their wards. They currently have five wards which each elect two councillors, which I've talked about in other podcasts as being a, a bad voting system. Uh, it doesn't give a lot of choice to the voters in each ward. Um, but one of the things is that if Wellington is to have its own ward that's not sort of part of Dubbo, you need to have five wards because it's that's how much it's over dominated by its bigger neighbour. And so the Wellington councillors have been very critical and opposed to this referendum. It'll be interesting to see the booth results to see how the referendum plays out. But one of the things about the voting system is if they abolish um, the wards and they're going to add one extra seat, you need... You know, if every Wellington voter voted for a candidate from Wellington, two of them would get elected. So uh, they can still do it. It'll just be whether those voters decide that is the most important attribute of their candidates as opposed to their gender or their ideology or their party membership or whatever, all the other things that you could use to decide how you vote. Um, I actually read a journal article, very different context, but it was about um, Israel and the Netherlands where they have no electorates at all and they did research on where members of parliament tend to come from. And they found the capital cities are overrepresented, but then the uh, the periphery is also overrepresented and it's the outer suburbs that get left behind, which I, I find interesting. But it would be interesting one day to do research on a council like Dubbo, particularly if they get rid of their wards, about are they all just electing Dubbo members or are they electing people from the smaller towns around them? Um, but, yeah, there is a there is a vote on that and that is driven that vote would not be happening if it wasn't for the amalgamation process. That's right. And I, it is that piece of work around do people vote because you're from a particular place like Wellington or because you're a particular political party or because you represent some other uh, issue that people, uh, electors think is important. I mean, I think in other jurisdictions where there uh, aren't what they call divided electorates, you know, where there aren't wards or some structure like that, that uh, example you used from uh, Europe is what actually I think does happen. They either come from the larger centre or they come from the very smaller centre, but the bit in the middle tends to get left out and that might reflect an identity issue anyway. So I think that's quite interesting. I suspect Wellington voters will care more about where their uh, councillors come from than Dubbo voters will, right? So they may be overrepresented, if anything. They'll vote for Wellington candidates, but some Dubbo voters vote for Wellington candidates too. I mean, I think that's great. I think that's all part of a push and pull of the electoral process. And uh, I think that kind of representativeness is interesting. So I've been following the urban big councils a little bit more, and there are a couple of others where there's been a bit of a push for de-amalgamation. Um, Bayside Council, which uh, we've talked about before, was a merger of Rockdale and Botany. It was a bit of a weird one where they're the thing they have in common is the bay and the airport they share, which neither of which are places people cross. Like there's not really a lot of com common community between those two places. And there was at least one vote on the council. I know 
I heard about a particular Liberal councillor who represented a part of Botany and has now gone over to Rockdale and someone was telling me, well, he's very unpopular now in the ward that he used to represent because he didn't support the amalgamation. And then there has also been a little bit of a push for Canterbury-Bankstown, which is at least at the time being still the most populous council in New South Wales, probably not for long, um, but um, uh, was made up of two what were already reasonably large councils before the amalgamations. And uh, I think there's a there's been a lot of chatter on my blog from residents of Canterbury who feel like it's a council that's dominated by Bankstown now. I was critical at the time and remain critical, and I think one of the things we're seeing play out in these potential de-amalgamation discussions is the basis on which the larger councils were formed. Um, I think the criteria that was used was not reflective of how people relate to places. Um, you know, I, I always use the example of, of Burwood, Strathfield and Ashfield, who, which really do run in a line. You can stand in parts of Burwood and Strathfield and wonder which LGA you're in because it's quite in a large kind of agglomeration now. But that's not how the councils got amalgamated. And um, they didn't get amalgamated either on the basis of how people uh, use and relate to places like, you know, where do you shop, where do you send your kids to school? Those are the kinds of locality indicators you might be interested in, um, you know, why we didn't get Waverley uh, and Malara that, you know, share Oxford straight down the middle, which leads to some issues about how some of these significant places are planned and managed. So I think that it was, it was very significantly a big P political driver where uh, the Labor, the areas that were considered either Labor or Liberal or other areas uh, were put together in a way that really, in many cases, defied people's sense of where they live and which parts of uh, which parts of town they relate to. So I think that is going to cause ongoing issues. And I think if it was done differently in the first place, uh, the argument for amalgamation, which of course, I mean, the arguments for larger councils, there's a there's a whole piece about that, which perhaps we can talk to about whether larger or smaller is better. Um, but you can't really cut through that discussion uh, if where they've been joined together doesn't seem rational to people um, because then it becomes another kind of discussion instead of whether larger or smaller is better. It becomes a discussion about which LGA, which place I belong to and how, does, how much does that make sense? Yeah, I think sometimes the anti-amalgamation arguments have settled on just opposing all amalgamation and that we should just go back to what we had. Whereas I feel like there are some like that. I, I think you could argue Central Coast or Canterbury-Bankstown could have just been left well alone. Um, I think if you de-amalgamate a Bayside, there'd then be a strong argument to re-amalgamate those areas with other councils around them. And some of those councils that survived, it was just because they brought court cases and they just waited the state government out, right? Some of those little tiny councils in the lower North Shore and the eastern suburbs and the and the outer inner west um, survived just for no other reason than that. Um, but then I also think you could probably use the same justification to break Blacktown into two or three. You know that you could you could be amalgamating some areas and and breaking others up. You know, and um, I live in Parramatta. The Parramatta CBD is actually pretty much right at the bottom of our council. And then you have Cumberland underneath it, which is a much poorer, much more labour voting area. But really, it's the same community. They don't really have a big centre. They're, it's southern Parramatta. Um, but you've got a council that is, it's got the wealthier, more liberal voting 
parts of that community that has control of the CBD and then a poor um, neighbour to the south that doesn't really have a big urban centre. And I don't know, I suspect some of that was deliberate from the Liberal government, but it, it does, it's a, whatever was the intention, it has the effect of having a rich, poor divide in our area. Mm. And I think that's Cumberland's quite a good example of where it's just hard to say what the rationale was for parts of it going you know, to one council, another part going to another council. It just it just doesn't seem to have made sense. So I think um, that's an example and there's there's lots of others around. I, I think the discussion about amalgamation is uh, goes ultimately to a discussion about what you think the function of local government is and whether scale helps local government be more efficient and effective. Um, if you think of local government as principally being about managing place in the sort of planning for place sense, uh, scale can be helpful. But of course, there's other mechanisms like, you know, the role of the GSC in settings, you know, particularly in Sydney state, you know, Sydney wide planning policies. If you think it's about economic drivers and activating town centres and in the Parramatta case, you know, the Sydney's they don't like to be referred to as the second CBD by any means, but it's, you know, it's certainly a major CBD and the focus of a council of Parramatta scale, uh, you know, that's that's clearly significant. But if you think of local councils being really an important vehicle for local democracy, then there's a whole discussion about whether that's enhanced or inhibited by larger councils. So your view about... Uh, uh, whether amalgamations are a good thing or bad thing is really dependent on your understanding and appreciation of what you think councils or local governments are about. Well, the trope is that bigger is more efficient, but smaller is more democratic. But I'm more of an expert on the latter than the former, but I would dispute both of those things that they're necessarily more efficient at the larger scale or more democratic at the smaller. Certainly when it comes to democracy, uh, there's a lot to be said for the idea that as councils get bigger, there's actually more capacity for the community and the media to know who they're voting for. You know, a lot of these little councils, the the media, and this is partly a reflection that local media has collapsed in Sydney, um, but that the local the media is not capable of properly covering the people who run compared to like state or federal politics. What are your thoughts on the efficiency question? You're right. I think at either end of the argument, it doesn't quite work. The the Central Coast, uh, the sort of the failure of Central Coast Council is, I mean, it, it's subject to a lot of analysis and I'm aware of much of that, but it it is at one level about scale. Two, quite large councils, big geographical areas, Wyong and Gosford, uh, you, large is not necessarily more efficient and there's quite a analysis of this in if particularly in European countries where uh, quite well-functioning countries have quite small local governments um, so you know the Central Coast Council is a is a very large council and like any large operation there are diseconomies of scale so by the time you set up the IT systems and the back office systems and all of that kind of stuff the investment required to get those up and running was really significant and completely underestimated in the amalgamation process in terms of those sort of costs. But very large can be extraordinarily inefficient because you have to introduce a whole new level of coordination. So country uh, councils like Central Coast ended up with 
you know, directors and managers and coordinators because somebody's got to knit it all together because it is, after all, a place-focused level of government. So you have to knit, you know, the roads bit and the water bit and the parks bit and all of those bits together. So you end up with a whole layer, a new layer of management. So that does all sorts of things to your operating costs and your efficiencies. And on the other hand, at the other end of the scale, to suggest that the citizens of smaller councils in Sydney are better represented by their councillors as opposed to larger councils just doesn't bear scrutiny. So it's not the case that smaller councils are better or more democratic uh, than larger councils. It's a function of how well those engagement processes with citizens happen. Um, councillors can't possibly, even if you're in a council of 30,000 people or you're in a council of 250,000 people, councillors can't get to know everybody. They can't go to every meeting. It is, after all, except for the mayor's role, a part-time, very part-time role, poorly remunerated. And um, many councillors, you know, most councillors, I'd suggest, work tremendous hours uh, getting to know people, going to events, you know, responding to correspondence, all that kind of stuff. It wouldn't matter how hard a councillor worked, either in, an, in a council area of 30,000 or a council area of 150 or 200,000. It, it is not the way effective representation happens through an individual relationship model. Councils are set up as large, complex organisations that have a lot of responsibility and councillors ought to be setting the strategic direction and leaving the operational matters to the organisation of council. So councillors are, what I always say, is leading rather than steering, um, although lots of councillors want to get involved in the detail, but that's part of the problem with the process. So if they, uh, councillors, really spend time uh, trying to understand what the key issues in their area are, talking to selections of people, encouraging their councils to do really good engagement process, processes, particularly things around, you know, deliberative engagement where they have access to a representative group of citizens and to sort of hear how people uh, respond to concerns facing their council areas. And then they reflect that through the policies and strategies of council. That's a councillor's job. It's not, it's not door knocking every council, every, every constituent. It's not going to every RSL meeting or football club meeting or childcare committee meeting. And councillors often wear themselves out with those kinds of activities rather than uh, encouraging and um, working with the legislation that they do have, which is to in, uh, make sure that their council, the operational arm of the council is directed by their strategic input. So that often plays out at the, at the development assessment level. Councillors are much more effective if they set the vision for their local government area in terms of what kind of place they want it to be through the planning system, but they get out of the detailed assessment of every application because, you know, a, a proposal either complies or it doesn't. So that's that idea that councillors need to be encouraged to be much more strategic and drive the organisation in its direction. Um, and general managers and CEOs and senior staff need to work much more with councillors to facilitate effective engagement rather than having councillors running around, going to every meeting and so on. 
one of the things that I enjoy doing when I'm working with councillors is I often interview all of the elected members individually and I ask them who their community is. And of course, all councillors see a slice of their community and it's usually their constituents who vote vote them in. So mm. lots of councillors are really well connected to the service clubs, you know, the RSL clubs and Rotary clubs and so on. And they see that that group as their constituency, whereas other councillors will be very connected into the, you know, community services activities of their councils. So what councils need to do is be given an opportunity to see their whole communities and understand that in a much more sophisticated way and then drive that through their planning processes, particularly their community planning processes, uh, to drive the strategic direction of those organisations. Sometimes the analogy of a board is used. I don't particularly like that, but you can see why if you say, well, these people should be like a board, the councillors should be like a board where they uh, support the policy and strategy of the organisation to deliver. I often uh, don't like the board analogy partly because... I do think sometimes there's a sense that a board, everyone is representing the same interests and they have a single interest and it's like, no, a council is consists of different interests and that's the voting system, right? Like we use proportional representation. Each of these people is elected to represent a different share. We don't know what that exact share is, but they are all representing different unique voters. Um, but I do think anything that you can do that moves them away from the worrying about a particular roundabout or playground fence or whatever into um, even if they have different strategic visions, right? Like that ideally people should be voting based on strategic visions. And I, I think that happens a little bit more in big councils than little councils. And I think you're thinking a lot about how councillors know their voters and how councils know their constituents but also in terms of how voters know their candidates and their councillors, the ability to know how people voted and hold them accountable for their decisions. I think sometimes it's a little bit at a federal and state level, we have a sense of a government and an opposition, right? And you have a sense of who's responsible. A council does things you don't like. It's it's easy sometimes for individual councillors to sort of duck responsibility for what what they might have voted on, but also you don't really know which of the councillors were, were voting for the even if we're thinking about those big strategic visions, who are the councillors who actually push that vision and who are the councillors who are opposed to it? It can be quite hard to know that. And I think with a bigger council, which can have more scrutiny, like part of it is a media problem. It's a problem of information about how you get that scrutiny on those councils. It's an information problem, I think, sometimes for those voters as well, that you just, you, uh, I've had so many people commenting going, all these people are running and I don't actually know what any of them stand for. And that is half the equation in a democratic election, right, is what they stand for, but it's also what they've done. It's one of the big weaknesses in the system in New South Wales that uh, government is trying to support councils to do something about. So if you think about the mechanisms of this, the the, elect, the councillors get elected in, within the first quarter, within the first term following that election, their main piece of work is to develop their community strategic plan. And that community strategic plan is more than what the council should do, but it's, it's so it's more than a plan for the council. It's a plan for the local government area. And councils don't just deliver services. They advocate to other levels of government for what needs to happen in a place and they enable, you know, things like non-government services to provide services in that local government area. So councils 
do the direct provision as well as the enable and advocate piece. And the community strategic plan is meant to be a plan that reflects the priorities of that community. And it's a process that should be significantly driven by the councillors through sophisticated engagement processes, as well as understanding that some things require more than one term to deliver on. So it's a really important strategic planning process and the community strategic plan, which is available to everyone to read. It's the big piece. It's the big strategic piece that every council in New South Wales does. So, you know, if you, and if you think about the things that require multiple terms to deliver any of the uh, analysis of, of big things like setting up a, you know, cultural and arts precinct or any of those kinds of big deliverables don't just happen within a four-year term of a council. They'll have to happen within multiple terms of councils. And so you need some consistency, even if there's a change in in who the leadership are to say, well, we think this is still a priority for our local government area. But the weakness in the system, I mean, it happens, there's mechanisms for it, but it's not particularly effective is to go, well, at the end of the term, like, you know, the last six months or the last three months, have you heard about council saying, well, this is what we said we'd do at the beginning of our term in our community strategic plan. This is what we've delivered on or not. And these are the reasons why. And obviously now there'd be things like COVID that have you know, cut across some of those things. But that back end of the process is poorly done. Um, and there's certainly a lot of work going on to say, let's strengthen that so councillors at the end of their terms can go out and say, we, we said we'd do this, we achieved this, we didn't achieve these things either because we changed our mind or the circumstances changed or we didn't. Uh, we weren't able to get the finance for it or whatever the situation is. But that closing of the process at the end of the term either doesn't happen or it's not known to people. And it happens technically because councils have to report on that, but it's certainly not done in the public arena where councillors say, this is what we said we'd do and this is what we've done. Now, you do see a bit of that in councils like the City of Sydney. It's not universally not done. So if you get councils like the City of Sydney say, we said we were going to, you know, do X and Y, they will tend to run a bit more, you know, the sustainability stuff that's been very evident in the City of Sydney, the City of Villages stuff, they tend to report more and that is a question of scale and resources. Yep, they tend to report more and they, they're out there a bit more on that stuff. I mean, you're never going to have politicians going out there and publicising their own failures though, right? That's part of the thing that you need other voices as well that are following these stories that are not either the council themselves who um, that's not their job. I mean, it can be their job to report, but it's they're not going to be out there publicising it in the context of an election campaign. Um, and it's, I mean, I don't want to overstate the effectiveness of federal and state democracy in this country. Um, because there's plenty of flaws there and there are ways that council democracy is better. But, um, you know, you have more of a, a vigorous media that can report on and bring back, r raise these issues that, that have been dropped, you know. I want to I move on briefly to another topic as well. Um, political parties are a stronger presence in New South Wales councils than in any other state, uh, mostly in urban areas. The Labor, Liberal and Greens parties all ran in a majority of Greater Sydney at the last round of elections in 2016-17. And, and this was the culmination of a gradual trend as parties have taken over more councils. Uh, political parties are less dominant in rural New South Wales, but they do pop up in some areas. 
And then this year, the Liberal Party has decided to withdraw from seven mostly large councils in Sydney that they had previously contested, significantly reducing the share of the city where there's an official endorsed Liberal running. Roberta, in your work, um, how does a council's operations change when political parties either get involved or just become more prominent? Yeah, look, it it is a really interesting trend and and in the local council setup, I think it is continues to be controversial with the community. And we do research on uh, what, uh, you know, regular citizens think about local councils and the issues. And there's certainly a divided view amongst constituents with respect to whether political parties is a good thing or a not a good thing in local government. Um, one of the advantages of political parties, if you can put it like this, is to say, well, that brings a bit more resourcing and potential coordination and um, you know, a capacity for individual uh, councillors to kind of get their messages out there if they're part of a group or a political party. One of the negatives, I think, is that, um, you know, there's a sense, and I have sympathy to, with this view, that local councillors ought to represent the local. They ought to come to a uh, council meeting and they ought to you know, read their papers. There's always briefings provided, particularly for decisions on major issues. They have access to experts in st- in the staff and other people. And they have things put to them on the floor of council with preparation, but on the floor of council where they're asked to vote or not for particular investments or particular changes. What happens with political parties, although caucusing is technically not uh, permitted, is that there is a concern from members of the community that they don't, they come to a meeting to decide on something with a predetermined view because it's either being driven out of so-called head office, whatever that is, um, or it's a party, political party platform that X or Y does or doesn't happen. So instead of local government being much more local where you, uh, councillors come together and decide in that meeting based on the evidence, based on the information, what their decision will be and the arguments that they hear around the table, uh, they might come into that meeting with a preformed view, which is not local. It might be a party, a state party platform. And that's the rub, I think. It's that it's the sense and I think the reality that it's not local. Uh, these decisions are made that we support X or Y because it's a party platform that may be less applicable in a particular context. Now, you see this happen at state government too. Uh, You know, there are party platforms and local members sometimes want to uh, step away from that because it doesn't play well or it doesn't work well in in someone's electorate. Uh, So it's magnified though in local government because the sense is it ought to be decisions made at that fine-grained granular level where that is what local government is, where those councillors are the people who know most about what's happening in their communities. And it's hopeful, it's hoped, and citizens do want this, that the votes that occur on the floor of council are informed by that local knowledge and they're not driven by larger interests. I mean, on the other side, you know, we see concerns about developer interests in that context because, uh, you know, the decisions are not made with a local um, framing. It's political parties, it's the same problem in a way. I generally am a fan of political parties existing. I think generally in democracy, democracy doesn't work that well when they don't exist. I think there's a coordination 
value. There's um, transparency for voters about who they're voting for. They know who they're voting for. They don't have to just guess amongst names they don't know. And there is value in that. Um, and theoretically it can help the accountability issue if you know, well, Labor's been running the council and I don't like how they're going, so I'll vote for someone else. So that it makes that much easier for a voter. But I think one of the big problems we have is like what you said about it not being local, is these parties are not formed in the context of a local government area, right? They are formed in the context of a state or even sometimes a national, you know, as opposed to a, a local MP in a state parliament. In the end, they're voting for the whole state. So it kind of makes sense that they factor in a, a broader set of issues and not just their local. And there are some political parties that only exist in one local council, right? You could argue the Clovermore Party. is a It's a party that exists in one. There's Michael Regan's Your Northern Beaches Party, uh, the Shoalhaven Independence Group, who are not independents. They are a party that has uh, a majority of seats on their council, Um the mayor of Fairfield is effectively part of, they call themselves independents, but there's a group of four of them who uh, basically got elected on a ticket together. Um, but those ones are, they were formed in the culture and in the context of that council. Whereas if you're Labor, Greens, Liberal, um, that's not the case. And I mean, at its worst, I think people often see them when they're being used to stepping stones, right? Where you have someone who gets elected to council who... You might get elected to council and then have an opportunity in the future to get elected to something else. But some people get elected very, very clearly with a path to running in the state politics down the track and getting out of there as quickly as possible. And I don't think that's good for anyone. There's broadly speaking three motivations uh, for councillors to stand. One is uh, what I call the oppositional councillor. So they've they've opposed a development or they've opposed an initiative of council. Um, they've become part of a group who've generally been opposing something. They get a bit of uh, an appreciation of how council works and they want to get onto council to stop that happening again or to change how the council operates. The other category of people are those political aspirants who are me and, and the Greens do it. Uh, you, if you want to be pre-selected for uh, the Greens, you need to demonstrate that you've got the political drivers. So you have to get out there and get on the hustings and do the door knocking and prosecute the arguments. And many people who get uh, who come through the Greens have had a go at local government. They've either been successful or not, but they've had to demonstrate their, uh, you know, their willingness to stand, even if it's in an unwinnable position on a council and so on, you know, to kind of make the numbers get the arguments out there. I mean, likewise, the, the major parties, um, I, I, we could all name half a dozen quite high-profile state members of parliament um, who've, who've taken the route through local government and are definitely on the move. And if you follow their careers, you will see that they were pretty disengaged once they got elected to council. They were holding a seat, but they were definitely using local government as the vehicle to get to the next level, level of government, whatever that is. And then there's that sort of third group of people who, um, and you see this much more in the regional areas, who, you know, are deeply committed to their communities and uh, want to make a difference. And sometimes they're the people who get re-elected year, you know, term on term on term, and conversations that we need to have with those people often is, you know, you've got great relations with people in your community, that's why you keep getting re-elected. What are you doing about succession? I, and these are often older men. Um, and you need to be talking to them, I think, and we do talk to them about what are you doing about succession? 
Are you identifying other people that you can bring in that can form the role that you do locally so that you can get a diversity of voices in these communities? There's so that that they who that composition of people on a council make a real difference to how that council functions. Um, but the other thing about the electoral system, which you know more about than I do, but is you know when you have people when you have above above the line and below the line voting, if you're not in a group, whether you're a group of independents, if you're a, if you're an independent who's not in a group, you're very unlikely to be elected. So the move to political parties and the the um, you know the 2016 amalgamations and the way the voting system works makes it more difficult for unaligned independents to get elected so you're either in a political party or you're in a group which in effect will act like a political party or not uh, post the election but if you're not in a group it's very difficult to get elected yeah so with the above the line i mean what often happens is that your your running mate candidates aren't really interested in getting elected to council. They're just there to help you. But you've still got to find people who are willing to not just support you but put their names down and nominate as candidates. And that's not easy. Um, there's a ward near where I live, Epping Ward in Parramatta, where there's a former Liberal councillor who's running again but running below the line and seems to have a reasonably large campaign. I was a bit surprised but couldn't find a number two and a number three to run with him. Um, and that's part of the issue is it just it just adds an extra burden that you've got to do. You can't just run as a single person. You've got to run as usually three or more. Um, but also you don't get a party name above the line and you don't get your name above the line if it's a House of Representatives election. Uh, sure, there's a party name, but the most prominent bit of information is the person's name. And so that's a reasonably even playing field between an independent and a party member. But... In the Senate, New South Wales Upper House, and in local council, uh, if you're a proper independent with no group, no well, no, no party, you just get letter C or letter D, and that's it. And um, I've often thought you should at least be able to have like the name of your first candidate appear above the line for that reason. Uh, and it does often mean genuine independents will register political parties so that they can run with a brand name, either their name or a, or. A, or a slogan above the line. I grew up in Campbelltown, which has uh, every ticket has to have eight candidates on it. And it's not uncommon an independent will get a running mate elected with them because the quote is only 6%. Um, but they all have uh, parties. They've all registered parties. And some of these parties have been handed down from generation to generation of independents that the person who was a councillor when I was growing up around here passed on to another person who's now retiring and passing on to a third generation of the Community First Party, for example. Um, but that's, again, another administrative burden to register. A, it's not as hard to register a local party as is for a state party, but it's a big burden that gets put on top of, you can't just decide to run on a whim at the last minute. But maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe you shouldn't be deciding to run at the last minute on a whim. Mm. And and councillors, many councillors are deeply underprepared when they hit council and realise both the amount of work, the amount of papers they've got to read, the amount of meetings they've got to attend and the breadth of what local government co- what local government does. I mean, we do a lot of work in the deliberative democracy area where we get regular groups of citizens together and, you know, work through particular issues and they're often local issues. Um, and one of the things that always comes out of those 
deliberative panel processes is people are amazed at the scope of the work local government does. The more you get involved with local government, the more you realise it's much more than roads, rates and rubbish and um, and they're significant organisations with significant budgets. They're very complex organisations to run because of the range of services that are offered um, and so on. And the one thing that you always find, the more people get involved with local government, the more amazed they are about all the things local government does and the importance of local government. So the more you can get people participating up close, even if they just run for a term, I think it does a lot to... Uh, increase the visibility and the importance of local government and the sort of impact it can have in your local community. I um, grew up in Campbelltown and I was a Greens member in my 20s and they had a, there wasn't a very large group of members, but they had a healthy practice of the councillor would bring items and discuss the business paper with people and stuff. And so there was a, a pathway there to learn about how the council worked. I remember reading business papers and sitting in the back row at a council meeting and uh, having chatted to our councillor about it. But I think that's pretty unusual even amongst political party members that you have people, volunteers who support you in that capacity. People will hand out on the booths and they'll say, I'll see you in four years, you know. Not a lot of people hang around to help those councillors once they've been elected. Yeah, and it's a function of being time poor. Um, You know, um, people... Most many households have, you know, both people working, kids, you know, like people are much more time poor than they were for participation in, uh, you know, volunteering and community events or uh, on on ground politics than they were even ten years ago. So that's goes to the point I made before about it's really important that we understand the role of councillors to be setting the strategic directions of these large organisations and that we arm those councillors as best we can with the information about, you know, what's the future population of this area going to be? What are the upcoming issues? You know, where are the pockets of disadvantage? What caused that? Uh, You know, what are the tensions that, what are the real decisions that we have to make? Because politics is about winners and losers and the role of local councillors is to be as well informed as they can be about mediating those consequences. So it isn't about going to every meeting, although, of course, uh, these groups certainly value local councillors coming and so on, but it really is arming themselves to understand the complexity of the areas that they represent and really driving that strategic direction for those organisations and holding the organisation account to account for the delivery against those strategic priorities. That is a quite sophisticated role, requires councillors to really be good strategic thinkers, be able to think about the future, what how decisions made now will affect the outcomes for people uh, in these communities in the future. It's much more than the transactional role that many councillors find themselves in, you know, going to meetings and listening to constituent concerns. It's really about driving, particularly post-amalgamation, where these organisations are large. They have multi, multi-million dollar budgets and they're much more than you know, letting the waste contract, they are very much about, you know, whether you've got a a safe, clean place to take your kids uh, to the park, uh, all the way through to, you know, how well people are protected when they go to the beach, et cetera, et cetera. So they're very large, complex organisations and councillors have a lot to get their heads around and good senior staff invest a lot of their time. In fact, CEOs and general managers, this is their job, 
um, educating councillors, providing them information, not just about budget things, but about, you know, what are the what's the future of this community going to look like? What are the things we need to put in place? You know, we're going to have this big increase in younger people. What are we doing about making sure we've got appropriate childcare, you know, that we've got enough schools for people, et cetera, et cetera. So setting the strategic direction is really critical and we, we really need to support councillors to do that. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you, Roberta, for joining me. Great pleasure. Anytime. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.